Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I've got a fun episode for you today. We're going to be addressing several different topics in today's episode. We're going to be answering some skeptical claims against historic Christianity. We're going to be talking about deconstruction and what are the six pillars of deconstruction. We're going to be doing a crash course in Richard Rohr's Universal Christ. If you've heard me talk about the Universal Christ on this podcast, I'm going to give you just a five or six minute flyover about what it's all about and how to answer it biblically. And we're going to talk about some tough things like, does the Bible condone human sacrifice? What are some basic apologetics questions that every Christian should learn how to answer? And so the audio from these shorter answers is coming from YouTube from two different places. So if you enjoy these shorter answers to some of these tough questions, I definitely want to direct you over to the YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com slash Alisa. Childers, or you can just go to YouTube and search Elisa Childers in the search bar. All of our long-form podcasts are published with the video, so if you like to watch podcasts rather than listen, you can go watch them over there. And also, I periodically produce some of these shorter videos. I also produce shorter videos for crossexamined.org, and so that's Frank Turek's ministry, and you can go to YouTube and search two words, cross-examined, and you'll find several of the shorter types videos I've made for them over there. A couple of the questions that you're going to be listening to today are coming from that YouTube channel, so definitely check both of those out. So this first topic I want to talk to you about is a very popular podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I've really enjoyed listening to this podcast, and, and as I've listened, uh, there's a lot I have to say that I think is really positive about it, but I also have some cautions for Christians who are listening through to this podcast. So, so here's my analysis of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a podcast produced by Christianity Today, and it has been number one on the religion and spirituality charts on Apple Podcasts for several weeks. This is the podcast everyone is talking about. It traces the history of Pastor Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church from its founding in the late 90s to its explosion of growth through the 2000s, and then ultimately to its downfall and disillusion in 2015. As of the recording of this video, seven episodes have been published, and I've listened to them all. Several people have asked for my opinion, so I thought today I could just offer a little bit of analysis, tell you what I think are some of the positives, and then maybe offer a few cautions for listening to the podcast going forward. So on the positive side, I think the podcast is incredibly well-produced, it's entertaining, it's fascinating, interesting, well-documented, and well-presented. 
I think they do a really good job of bringing to light a topic that I think more Christians should be talking about, and that's the issue of spiritual abuse. In my work analyzing the movements of progressive Christianity and deconstruction, what you hear in so many deconstruction stories is that they start with a story of spiritual abuse. This is something we need to be talking about, exposing, and acknowledging. When someone's been through spiritual abuse, it can be incredibly confusing because at the same time, they may have had a genuine encounter with God. They may have even become a Christian in a particular church that ends up becoming an abusive atmosphere. So I think this podcast did a really good job of showing the balance. They interviewed people who had had good experiences. They highlighted some of the positives, but they also uncovered an atmosphere of bullying and abuse from the founding pastor, Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll was a part of the early emergent church movement, which eventually would go on to become what we know today as progressive Christianity. But early in the movement, there were both conservative and more liberal voices. They ended up parting ways, which is why the emergent movement is largely remembered today as a more theologically liberal movement. The rise and fall of Mars Hill traces some of that history through a particular narrative, which brings me to one of the cautions I might have listening to the podcast going forward. The podcast highlights the voices of several progressive of Christians who I actually write about in my book, Another Gospel. The progressive Christians who are interviewed and talked about on the podcast are definitely portrayed as the heroes of the story. This is where I think it can be kind of confusing for people who aren't aware of who some of the major players in the podcast are. And so I think it's really important that we use discernment when we listen to this podcast because some of those same progressive voices went on to deny the sufficiency of scripture and the historic Christian gospel. Another point of caution I might offer has to do with the way the podcast portrays the views of complementarianism and egalitarianism. So if you're unfamiliar with those terms, essentially complementarians believe that men and women were both made in the image and likeness of God and therefore are equal in dignity and value and worth, but they're different in their roles and callings and vocation. Whereas in the egalitarian view, it starts the same. Men and women are both created in the image and likeness of God, equal in dignity and value and worth, but they are also interchangeable in role, calling, and vocation. So Christians have debated these issues for years. This is not something that I think Christians should divide over as brothers and sisters in Christ. It certainly is an important topic to debate. Where you land on it is probably going to determine where you would choose to go to church and who you would consider to be your leadership at that church. I am personally a complementarian, and I think there's great beauty and value in seeing the difference between the roles, callings, and vocation of both men and women in the home and in the church. So one of the criticisms of Mark Driscoll in the podcast Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is the hard stance he took on complementarianism. And so one of the narratives that's put forth in the podcast is that complementarianism is in and of itself abusive. Now, they never explicitly say this, but it's definitely the implication and it's what you walk away thinking. They interview mostly egalitarians to analyze the complementarianism of Mark Driscoll. But as many of my friends in apologetics say, you can't judge a philosophy or a teaching on its abuses. And I would agree that Mark Driscoll's view, some of the teachings I heard on the podcast, would be an abuse of a proper view of complementarianism. Complementarianism, when lived out in a biblical way, when everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing, is quite beautiful and I think establishes a great structure for the home and for society. Now again, I know there are Christians who are going to disagree with me on that. And 
that's fine. But what I take issue with is the portrayal of complementarianism as being abusive in and of itself. And so with that said, I'd like to leave us with a couple of principles that we should always be using as Christians when we listen to podcasts and take in media, especially media that has the label Christian on it. This first one has actually been on my heart a lot lately because of the rise of the social media platform, and that is be aware of narratives. Look, we're all human. None of us are perfectly capable of analyzing something from an entirely unbiased perspective. This is why I'm always trying to pinpoint what are my biases? What is my experience with this? What baggage am I bringing to this podcast that's going to make me think about it in a certain way? The best we can do is to acknowledge those biases and try to move past them. So my encouragement to us, even as we listen to this podcast, is be aware of narratives. Whether they intend to or not, there are narratives being put forward. The history is being analyzed in a certain way. So we just need to be aware of that and make sure we're thinking critically as we encounter all of the material in the podcast. And the second thing I would say is just filter everything through the scriptures. So if a particular doctrine or teaching is being presented as abusive, we need to go back to the scriptures. What do the scriptures teach about this? That that's how we'll know if the doctrine is being abused or if it's being implemented properly. And filtering everything through scripture can keep us from swinging from one extreme to another. We can listen to a podcast like this, learn from it, we can glean the good stuff, but rather than following every voice that might actually have something true to say on one point, we keep our authority where it belongs, and that's with scripture. All right, before we get into this next topic, I want to tell you about Online Christian Courses. This is an organization that I partner with. It's an organization I really believe in and highly recommend. They do throughout the year, several courses that you can take online by experts in particular topics ranging from theology to apologetics. You get uh, several weeks of training through Zoom. You get to do live Q&As with the instructors. It's just a really fantastic way to improve your knowledge in some of these topics. And so they've got one coming up on October 4th, and this one is called The Ethics of Abortion, Pro-Life Apologetics in an Uncertain Age. And the expert instructor for this is Scott Clue. Guys, I cannot recommend this highly enough. You're going to get all you need to know about uh, clarifying the abortion debate. What are the three most important words for any pro-life apologist? What is the pro-life argument? What's the debate all about? Uh, you're going to learn the science of embryology. You're going to learn objections to pro-life arguments and how to reply to those. What are the worldview questions that drive the abortion debate? They're going to give you a really strong philosophical case for the pro-life view. I mean, this is going to dive deep uh, to where you're going to really understand what's going on uh, surrounding everything with the abortion debate. So that's going to begin on October 4th. It's a 10-week premium course. You're going to get seven Zoom sessions where you can ask questions and participate live with uh, Scott Klusendorf. So just a little bit about him. He's the founder and president of the Life Training Institute, which was established to equip pro-life advocates for defending their views in the public square. And he's just a passionate defender of preborn children. So definitely you want to get in on this course. You can go to onlinechristiancourses.com to check that out. Now, if you use the code ELISA10, that's ELISA10, you're going to get 10% off of your tuition. So again, go to onlinechristiancourses.com, find this course, and then put in ELISA10. By the way, that code is good for any course on online Christian courses. Okay, so check that out, onlinechristiancourses.com. 
a special code ALISA10. All right, the next question we're going to talk about is one that I see from skeptics from time to time, and that's that somehow the Bible condones human sacrifice because of the story of Jephthah in the Old Testament. So here's my short answer to that question. The Old Testament is brutal at times. It records horrific examples of violence, treason, cannibalism, betrayal, and murder. So the question is, is God okay with all of that? For example, does the Bible approve of human sacrifice because of the story of Jephthah sacrificing his virgin daughter as a burnt offering to Yahweh? So the first thing we need to bear in mind when we're reading through Old Testament stories is that the Bible does not condone everything that it records. That is something that we need to repeat, memorize, and remember. You see, some books of the Bible are historical, and they don't necessarily make moral commentary on every historical event that they report about. Just keeping that one thing in mind will solve at least half of the problems you might encounter with some of the more troubling stories in the Old Testament. And let's not forget that the Old Testament is largely about a very rebellious people who tend to disobey God at every turn. When that happens, there's bound to be some unpleasantness. And this will also help us a bit with the story of Jephthah, but admittedly, it's not quite that simple in this case. You see, after sacrificing his only virgin daughter to God, Jephthah is honored in what is often referred to as the Hebrews Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11.32. He's mentioned among greats like Samson and David and Samuel, except were they really that great? More on that later. So is Jephthah's inclusion in the Hall of Faith evidence that God was pleased with his sacrifice? Well-known atheist and Harvard evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins certainly seems to think so. In his famous treatise against religion, The God Delusion, he refers to the story of Jephthah like this, quote, God was obviously looking forward to the promised burnt offering, end quote. All right, let's dig into this. What does the story of Jephthah actually say? So basically, when the Ammonites declared war on Israel, the elders begged Jephthah to fight for them and to be their leader. But before going out into battle, the text says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And this is found in Judges 11.29. From there, he traveled out to the sons of Ammon and made this vow to God. Here's what he said. If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The Bible goes on to tell us that the Lord gave the Ammonites into Jephthah's hand, and Israel was victorious. And then when he got home, the first thing to come out of his house to greet him was his only child, a virgin daughter. Of course, he was very upset by this. He tore his clothes in anguish, but he said, ultimately, he couldn't take back his vow. So she went into the mountains to mourn her virginity, and after two months, she returned. And Jephthah, quote, did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man, end quote. Now, there's a bit of debate over the interpretation of this passage. Scholars are a bit split on what they think actually happened. So interpretation number one, some scholars believe that Jephthah didn't kill his daughter at all, but rather that he sacrificed her into permanent service to the Lord associated with the tabernacle. So her service would mean that she could never marry and would remain a virgin for the rest of her life. And there really are some contextual elements that seem to justify this interpretation. For example, she agreed that he should keep his vow and went into the mountains to weep for her virginity. Notice she wasn't weeping for her life. 
scholars Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe wrote this, There was no reason for Jephthah's daughter to mourn her virginity unless she was facing a life of perpetual virginity. And at the end of verse 30, after Jephthah completes the vow, it says, and she had no relations with a man. That would be a strange thing to say if the text was communicating that he had just offered her up as a burnt offering. Also, the Hebrew word used for burnt offering is ola, which can also mean to ascend or go up. The same word is used this way in Ezekiel 40, 26. Most Hebrew words have various usages, and the context is what determines the meaning. This is why a growing number of scholars believe that in the context of virginity, Jephthah must have meant that he was dedicating his daughter to the Lord's service as a living sacrifice, not a burnt one. But the second interpretation is more common and popular, and that's that Jephthah did, in fact, sacrifice his daughter on the altar as a burnt offering after his military victory. Human sacrifice was prevalent in the surrounding cultures of the ancient world, and Israel's leaders were known to continually dabble in paganism and the worship of false gods. In fact, this is why God was so frequently upset with them and exacting judgment on them all throughout the Old Testament narrative. So regardless of which interpretation is correct, Jephthah would not have been justified in killing his daughter because human sacrifice was strictly forbidden by Mosaic law. In fact, it was punishable by death. And the very nation that Jephthah conquered was known for child sacrifice in honor of their god Molech, who was called an abomination by God in 1 Kings 11.7. In fact, child sacrifice was so morally reprehensible to God that he described certain kings as evil based on their practice or approval of it. And we can't forget that Israel's participation in child sacrifice is what caused God to allow the Babylonians to take them into captivity in the first place. So there's no ambiguity here. God absolutely detests child sacrifice. So if the first interpretation is correct, there's really no difficulty with the Jephthah story, but let's assume that the second one is correct. There are two main difficulties to wrestle with in the text. Number one, why does the text say that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah? And second, why is he in the Hebrews' hall of faith? There are several examples in Scripture in which the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone for a specific task who ended up doing ungodly things later. For example, the Bible describes Samson as having the Spirit of the Lord upon him when he killed a lion with his bare hands and when he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And Samson also slept with a prostitute and committed adultery with Delilah. And yet he was listed in company with Jephthah as a great man of faith. In the Old Testament, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon a person, the Spirit didn't override their free will, but empowered them to accomplish His will in certain situations. And what about that hall of faith and the many greats mentioned alongside Jephthah? Well, guess what? They were seriously flawed. David slept with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied on more than one occasion. Gideon made an ephod that was turned into an idol. And one of the few women mentioned was Rahab, who had been a prostitute. Either way the Jephthah story is interpreted, there's no interpretation that would allow for the idea that God approved of human sacrifice. Personally, I'm thankful that the Spirit of the Lord can come upon imperfect people and accomplish great things. And despite their personal failures, they can still be honored as great men and women of faith. So before we get into our next question, I want to let you know about some fun interviews that we have coming up on the podcast. We're going to be interviewing Kosti Hinn, and we're going to be talking about the sensitive topic of spiritual abuse, church hurt, church abuse, and 
he's going to give us a pastoral perspective, but also the perspective of someone who's sort of lived through that. He writes about that in his book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. So be looking for that. On September 21st in the evening, 7 p.m. Central, we're going to be doing a live stream on YouTube with Jay Warner Wallace. It's the release date of his new book called Person of Interest, which I endorsed. It's phenomenal. So that'll be September 21st, live streamed on YouTube. You can ask your questions live, and Jay Warner Wallace will be there. We've got a couple of special guests going to join us, so that'll be really fun as well. On September 18th, uh, Krista Bontrager, who's been a, a guest on the podcast before, and I are going to be interviewing Nancy Piercy. I have wanted to get Nancy Piercy on the podcast for so long, and it's finally happening. So tune in for a live stream on YouTube for that, but also the audio for that will be published to this podcast live stream at some point in the future. We've just got so much great stuff coming up. We're going to be interviewing Ryan Anderson on his book, When Harry Became Sally, about the transgender debate. So don't miss some of these fun live streams that are coming out. Go to YouTube to check those out. All right, next we're going to talk through five apologetics questions that I think every single Christian should learn how to answer, at least in a very basic and simple way. So check it out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Every Christian is called to be prepared to make a defense for what we believe. And the word that's used here, translated into English as defense, is the Greek word apologia. And this is where we get our English word apologetics. Apologetics just means giving a reason for what you believe. And when it comes to the realm of Christian apologetics, this can span a lot of different disciplines like science, logic, philosophy, and history. Christian apologetics basically has two goals. Number one, to provide reasons why Christianity is true, and number two, to communicate those reasons to the world. Now, this can seem overwhelming if you've never studied apologetics before. There can be all kinds of different questions people have, skeptical claims brought against Christianity. Today, we're going to talk through five basic apologetics questions that I think every Christian should be prepared to answer. Now, this can seem overwhelming when we see the broad spectrum of of skeptical claims that's brought against Christianity or the many questions brought about by honest seekers. So my goal today is certainly not to give an extensive answer to each one of these questions, but maybe to give the start of an answer, maybe show you a couple of ways to think about each of these questions, and then I'm going to give you resources at the end of each question so that you can learn more if it's a question that interests you. So number one, have the New Testament documents been corrupted? Well, obviously, when the New Testament was being written, we didn't have a printing press, so each manuscript had to be copied by hand. And when the original documents no longer exist, scholars use a science called textual criticism to reconstruct the wording of ancient texts. When they have a lot of manuscripts and early manuscripts, they can do this with a great deal of accuracy. The New Testament documents have more manuscripts and earlier manuscripts to support their accuracy than any work of ancient classical literature. 
In fact, most scholars agree that the New Testament has been copied with an unprecedented high level of accuracy. There's really just a very small percentage of variations between the manuscripts that affect the meaning of the text. And among those, there isn't one that calls into question any cardinal Christian doctrine. If you want to learn more about textual criticism and the transmission of the New Testament documents, I highly recommend a book called Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism by Peter Gerber and Elijah Hickson. You can also take an online course on textual criticism by one of the top textual critics in the world, Dr. Daniel Wallace, who's professor of New Testament studies at DTS. I'll link to that below. Question number two, is there any evidence that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened? So, esteemed historian and New Testament scholar Gary Habermas collected over 1,400 of the most critical scholarly works written between 1975 and 2003 about the resurrection of Jesus. These works ranged from the ultra-liberal to the far-right conservative, and he discovered that virtually every scholar agreed on several points surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Here are four of them. Number one, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, that Jesus' disciples believed he rose from the dead and appeared to them and were willing to suffer and die for these beliefs. Number three, that the church persecutor Paul suddenly became a Christian after having an experience that he believed was the risen Jesus. Number four, the brother of Jesus and famously skeptical James was suddenly converted after he believed he had seen the risen Jesus. Habermas also noted that somewhere around 75% of scholars also agree that Jesus' tomb was found empty. The best explanation of these minimal facts is that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected from the dead. If you want to learn more about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I recommend a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Michael Lacona and Gary Habermas. If you want to go a little deeper, you can pick up N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. This brings us to question number three. Has science disproved God? Scientists study the material world, and by definition, God is not material. In fact, the statement, God does not exist, is not actually a statement of science. It's a philosophical statement. It can't be proven in a lab. So in order for scientists to assert that God does not exist, they have to filter their evidence through the philosophical lens of materialism, which excludes the possibility of anything outside the material realm. Frank Turek offers this illustration in his book, Stealing from God. Quote, to say that a scientist can disprove the existence of God is like saying a mechanic can disprove the existence of Henry Ford. It doesn't follow. If you want to learn more about this question, I recommend a book called Has Science Buried God by John Lennox. You can also check out reasons.org and discovery.org. Question number four, does the Bible condone slavery? When Americans hear the word slave, we think of the abuse and forced labor of African Americans in the antebellum South. But when we look to the Old Testament system that God instituted, the Hebrew word ebed, which is often translated as slave in English, did not carry the same negative connotation it does in our modern context. So in ancient Israel, this type of servanthood was a system in which a destitute person could voluntarily work to pay off a debt. 
Although it wasn't a perfect system, they were given food and shelter, legal rights, and protection from physical mistreatment. After seven years, they were released from their debt and servitude and given a generous gift of flocks and wine and grain. In some cases, the Israelites kept servants from surrounding nations as a result of war, but they were commanded to treat them humanely, and those servants were also protected from mistreatment under biblical law. In fact, human trafficking was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Now, the type of slavery that was sanctioned by the Roman Empire in the New Testament context was a bit different than the type of system God instituted for Israel in the Old Testament. But it's interesting to note that nowhere in the New Testament is this type of slavery condoned. In fact, anywhere from 85 to 90% of the Roman population were slaves, and encouraging slaves to rebel against their masters would have meant execution or branding. Instead, the Apostle Paul taught that slaves were on equal terms with free people in the eyes of God, and encouraged change beginning in hearts. This radically countercultural teaching began to play out in history and would eventually inspire people like John Wesley and William Wilberforce to oppose modern slavery and support abolition. If you want to take a deeper look at the more problematic Bible passages regarding slavery, I recommend Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? I'm also going to link to a lecture from Dr. Peter Williams entitled, Does the Bible Support Slavery? This brings us to question number five. Is there any evidence outside the Bible that Jesus actually existed? So this claim tends to make the rounds on social media from time to time, but the answer is really quite simple. There are 10 non-Christian sources that mention Jesus as an actual person within 150 years of his life. He's mentioned by Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Plegan, Thallus, Suetonius, Lucian, Celsus, Marabar Serapion, and the Jewish Talmud. Now, this does not include the abundance of Christian historical witnesses who wrote about him, including the eyewitnesses. If you want to learn more about this question, I'm going to link below an interview with Dr. Gary Habermas called Undeniable Historical Evidence for the Existence of Jesus. I'm also going to link to an interview on Mike Winger's YouTube page where he interviews historian Mike Lacona, and that's called Real Historian Responds to Jesus Was a Myth Claims. Now, if you want a resource that talks about all of these questions, I want to recommend a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. This will help you build the classical case for the truthfulness of Christianity starting with the question, does truth exist? Moving through, does God exist? Who is God? How did he reveal himself in the world? Is the Bible the word of God? And finally, the resurrection of Jesus. So I hope this video has helped equip you and give you a bit of a bird's eye view into what it might look like for you to begin to answer these basic apologetics questions as you become prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And remember to do it with gentleness and respect. You know, one of the things I hear from skeptics and even from progressive Christians from time to time is that somehow the Bible is not reliable because there's this perception that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict each other. So I studied this out a few years ago, and here's what I discovered. Over the years, many skeptics have claimed that the creation stories found in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are contradictory. One book put it like this. Genesis begins with two distinctive creation stories that are impossible to synthesize or string together into consecutive events with any integrity. That same book went on to claim that the two accounts were written by different authors and that the order of events just don't line up. So let's discuss these ideas in turn. Number one, 
Was Genesis 1 and 2 written by different authors who were telling different stories? Early Jewish and Christian traditions held that the majority of the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, were associated with Moses. But in the early 1800s, some European Old Testament scholars began to seriously challenge that idea. By the end of the 1800s, a theory called the Documentary Hypothesis was introduced, and this basically taught that the Pentateuch was written by four or more authors editors who lived long after Moses, and that the supernatural events it records are not historical. Other than an obvious anti-supernatural bias, there were two reasons for these conclusions. First, there are some stylistic differences in the text, and second, God is called by different names in the various portions. For example, in Genesis 1, God is referred to as Elohim. In chapter 2, he's called Yahweh. This led some to see this as evidence that we have two different authors, which gave them the idea that these are two separate creation accounts. Genesis 1 gives us a more broad and chronological description of the creation days, and it uses the more general term for the creator God, Elohim. Genesis 2 kind of zooms in and gives us a more focused look at the sixth day of creation, and it expounds more upon what happened as humans were created, placed in the garden, and began their relationship with God. This might be why Moses used God's personal name here, Yahweh. Regarding stylistic differences, it's really not that unusual for an author to vary their writing style based on what they're writing. I know this from personal experience. There are certain types of things I'll write where I'm trying to stay as condensed and succinct as possible. I don't tend to give a lot of detail or tell a lot of personal stories. I don't get too deep in the weeds of the different objections and counter-objections. However, when I wrote my book, I knew I had a lot more space to convey the point that I was trying to make. I wanted to write it in a voice that would feel like you're having a conversation with me. And I can totally see how someone might read one of my blog posts and read my book and think this was written by two different authors. In the same way, the first five books of the Old Testament cover all kinds of different material. It'd be natural for the author to use one style for writing history, another style for writing laws and penalties, and even another when describing the intricate details of the sacrificial system. But the most powerful evidence for Mosaic authorship, in my opinion, is the evidence found within the Bible itself. The Pentateuch claims this in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, along with other Old Testament authors like Joshua, Ezra, and Daniel. In the New Testament, Peter and Paul refer to Moses as the author of the Pentateuch, and Jesus does also in all four Gospels. So let's take a look at that second claim. Are Genesis 1 and 2 actually contradictory stories? Well, the only way these can be seen as contradictory is just to assume that they're meant to be understood both as a chronological treatment of the creation narrative. But like I said before, Genesis 1 is more of a broad, chronological, helicopter-style flyover of the creation account. It even lists the actual creation days in numerical order, whereas Genesis 2 zooms in for a closer look at day 6. But even with this in mind, people still get tripped up on some details. Here's one of the most common and difficult ones. Genesis 1.11 says this, then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and it was so. And then in Genesis 2.5, it says this, No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
So upon first glance, Genesis 1 seems to be saying that vegetation was created on day 3, before man, and Genesis 2 seems to be saying that vegetation didn't exist before man. So which is it? If we look at the word order and structure of the sentence in Genesis 2, the reason that no shrub of the field and plant of the field had grown was because there had been no rain or man to till the ground. So these particular types of plants required both. I say these particular types because Genesis 2 mentions two types of plants that aren't mentioned in Genesis 1. This suggests that whatever kinds of plants these were, they were designed specifically for man to tend. Bible scholar Michael Kruger wrote this, be assured that there is no contradiction between Genesis 2.5 and Genesis 1, because Genesis 2.5 is speaking of entirely different types of plants. It's only these particular plants, plants designed for mankind, that will spring up after man. Another common misunderstanding occurs because Genesis 1 says that the animals were created on day 6 before man, but Genesis 2.19 says this, So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. So did man already exist when God made the animals? Well, the short answer is no. In Hebrew, there's no separate pluperfect verb tense. So this means that distinguishing chronology isn't quite as simple in Hebrew as it is in English. Here's an example John Lennox gives in his book, Seven Days That Divide the World. Jim bought a car. He drove it home. You ask where he keeps it. Well, he built a garage to put it in. He built the garage when he brought it home? No, the garage was actually already there. The fact could have been made clearer in English by using the pluperfect tense, he had built, rather than using the simple past tense, he built. So there's good reason to translate these verses in the pluperfect sense as the NIV and ESV have, and it goes like this. God had formed the animals and brought them to man, instead of God formed. There's no chronological disagreement here. When we hear a skeptical claim about the Bible, sometimes it's just easy to go with the flow and throw up your hands and say it doesn't really matter. Investigation takes hard work, but in my years of study, I've learned that if I'll put in the effort and energy, it always turns out that the one who needs correcting is always me, not the Bible. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about deconstruction and what that is and how that's playing out around us. Recently, I found an article from a progressive Christian site that laid out six pillars of deconstruction. I thought that it was actually very insightful to help us understand what's going on in the minds of people who are deconstructing. So here are the six pillars of deconstruction. Deconstruction is the process in which someone who grew up a Christian starts to pick apart their beliefs and explain them away, often discarding the beliefs they grew up with. Sometimes Christians will deconstruct all the way into agnosticism or atheism, but very often they deconstruct into a broader type of spirituality, often progressive Christianity. And there was a post on a progressive Christian blog site that talked about the six pillars of deconstruction. And I think it's important for us to understand the process of deconstruction if we're going to help friends and loved ones of ours who might be going through the process themselves. And so according to this progressive Christian site, these six pillars are the pillars that the entire Christian faith rests upon. And once one of them begins to fall, the next one falls, and essentially the entire structure of Christianity will crumble underneath its weight. So let's talk through these six pillars. The first pillar of deconstruction is 
is the Bible. So according to this post, the foundation of Christianity should be Christ, but they argue often it's not, it's the Bible. Here's what they say. The foundation of the Christian faith should be Christ, but that's not the case, unfortunately. For most evangelical Christians especially, the Bible is their authority, and they will gladly affirm this if you're uncertain about it. And so according to this process of deconstruction, once the authority of the Bible gets moved out of the way, that pillar begins to fall. But I'd like to point something out in the way this is worded. Notice he says the foundation should be Christ, but often it's the Bible. But then he goes on to use the word authority. Well, I just want to point out that foundation and authority are two different things. I think most evangelical Christians, myself included, would agree that the foundation of the Christian faith is Christ. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should allow Christ to inform what our view of the Bible is. And over and over again, Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures, specifically calling them the Word of God. In fact, in Matthew 4, when he was being tempted in the wilderness— by the devil, he appealed to the authority of Scripture to fight off the temptation. So because we believe Christ is the foundation of our faith, we obey what he says about the Bible. The second pillar of deconstruction is eternal torment or hell. According to this post, once you start to doubt the absolute accuracy of the scriptures, it's a short walk to questioning the validity of eternal torment in hell for those who don't pray the prayer or join the Christian club. So right off the bat, I want to point out that becoming a Christian isn't praying a magic prayer or joining some kind of exclusive club. It's placing active trust in the person of Jesus Christ and the saving work he accomplished on the cross. It's giving him our lives and following Christ. But I do think there are some misunderstandings about what hell actually is. We read in scripture about the gnashing of teeth of those who are in hell. I always thought that meant that they were just regretful and remorseful that they never had a chance to hear the gospel. But when we look that phrase up in scripture, gnashing of teeth, it's commonly used in reference to an enemy. It's an act of violence and rebellion against someone you hate. So in reality, people in hell are gnashing their teeth at their enemy who is God. They don't love him. They don't want to be in his presence forever. I also think a case can be made for there being different levels of punishment in hell. I make the case for this and other points about hell in my book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. The third pillar of deconstruction is penal substitutionary atonement. So according to this post, once the pillar of the Bible falls, once the pillar of hell falls, next comes the atonement. In progressive Christianity, the idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son implicates the moral character of God, turning him into some kind of cosmic child abuser. But as we know, Jesus himself said, "'No one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly.'" He said he had the authority to do this given to him by the Father. And also, we need to understand that Jesus is God. He willingly came to earth. In fact, it's why he came. So when we see it like that, we don't have this petty, wrathful, vengeful father requiring some hapless victim of a whipping boy to come take punishment in our place. You have God himself saying, sin needs to be punished. I'll take the punishment upon myself. The fourth pillar of deconstruction is suffering in the world. 
This is a big one. In fact, the Post says this is the biggest one, and granted, it's a huge question that Christians have wrestled with and have to continue wrestling with, and that is, if God is good, why does he allow suffering in the world? Many Christians have done great work in this area. I recommend Clay Jones' book, Why Does God Allow Evil? But one of the ways I like to look at it is that it's true. We have a lot of suffering in the world, and most of that suffering is brought on by people hurting other people. And God allows us to have free will to make our rebellious choices here on earth. But he didn't just solve the problem of suffering. He became the answer to the problem of suffering by stepping into his creation, taking our sins upon himself, paying the payment for our sins, and dying in our place so that we could place saving faith in him and ultimately be with him in heaven forever where there will be no more suffering, evil, or pain. The fifth pillar of deconstruction is end times hype. So according to the Post, if you live long enough, you'll start to notice an embarrassing yet consistent string of failed prophecies concerning the return of Jesus and the end of the world. And he makes a very good point here. That is definitely something the church has gotten wrong. In times past, some Christians have made eschatology more of a primary doctrine rather than a secondary one. I think as Christians, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is coming back. His return is in the future. And if we keep our eyes on that, we can respectfully disagree with each other on how long the millennium is, when it's happening, and other specifics about end times. The sixth and final pillar of deconstruction is the church. This is a difficult one. According to the Post, this pillar falls for some because they just get tired of being abused by those in authority over them or being called a heretic for asking too many questions. And certainly we have seen a lot of abuse scandals come out. We do see hypocrisy in the church. I know people who have come to their church leadership with questions and they were told, don't question such things or just believe the Bible or the Bible says so. And I think the church can do better. The church needs to be a safe place for people to process their questions and doubts. And when it comes to things like abuse and hypocrisy, the gospel opposes those things, and the gospel has answers for those things. So there's no need to throw the gospel out with the failings of the church. Where the church has gone wrong, we need to repent. So these are the six pillars that begin to fall as people walk through their deconstruction processes. So as we love those in our lives who might be questioning some things or even going through a process of deconstruction, we can have a better understanding of where they're coming from and better equip ourselves to be able to answer the questions they have and love them through their journeys. Well, if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you've probably heard us talk about this concept called the universal Christ. I've got a four-hour podcast with Stephen Bancars on this topic. I've got shorter videos that talk about it. But I want to give you just a five- or six-minute flyover. What is the universal Christ, and why is it unbiblical? Check it out. Recently, two former contemporary Christian music artists posted similar tweets that caught the attention of Christians on social media. The first came from Kevin Max of the band DC Talk. He announced on Twitter that he had been deconstructing, reconstructing, progressing for years. And when people began to reply to his tweet, he clarified that in his view, he was not leaving Christianity but was simply following the universal Christ. The next tweet came from Michael Gunger of the band Gunger. He posted on Twitter and then later on Instagram this, Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. 
Now, these tweets were a bit confusing to Christians who aren't aware of a view of Christ that's popular in the New Age and has become quite prominent in the movement of progressive Christianity. Maybe you've heard the phrase cosmic Christ or Christ consciousness. Well, today I'm going to give you a quick crash course on where this is all coming from, and that is a view called the universal Christ. So both of these artists, both Kevin Max and Michael Gunger, have publicly endorsed a teacher called Richard Rohr and his book, The Universal Christ. According to the description of the book on Amazon, Rohr argues that Christians' understandings of Jesus and of Christ have been limited by culture, religious debate, and the human tendency to put ourselves at the center. It goes on to say that Rohr draws upon scripture, history, and spiritual practice to articulate a transformative view of Jesus Christ as a portrait of God's constant, unfolding work in the world. So what is the universal Christ? In his book, Richard Rohr separates Jesus and Christ into two separate entities. Jesus becomes nothing more than a model and an example of the human and the divine united in one body. And then Christ is a cosmic reality that's found whenever the material and co-divine coexist, which according to Rohr is always and everywhere. This is all rooted in Rohr's worldview, which is panentheism. And panentheism teaches that God exists in all things and transcends all things. Now, this differs greatly from the Christian understanding of God's omnipresence, which teaches that God is everywhere. He is spirit, and thus he cannot be contained within physical matter. His presence isn't contained within rocks and mountains and flowers and animals, which panentheism implies. Richard Rohr, who's an open panentheist, wrote this, God loves things by becoming them. God loves things by uniting with them, not by excluding them. Through the act of creation, God manifested the eternally outflowing divine presence into the physical and material world. Ordinary matter is the hiding place for the spirit, and thus the very body of God. In a podcast for the Center for Action and Contemplation, he said that the universe is the body of God. Yes, it's the second person of the Trinity in material form. So if we follow that faulty view of creation to its logical conclusion, you are the Christ. I am the Christ. The chair you're sitting in is the Christ. So let's swing back to Richard Rohr's idea that we were never separated from God in the first place. If we understand his view of panentheism, which assigns inherent divinity to every created thing, then we can see why he would reject the idea that we were ever separated from God, because we all carry that spark of inherent divinity within us. Now, this contradicts the historic Christian gospel on just about every point. The Christian gospel is good news. It's the proclamation of salvation, God reconciling sinful humans to himself. It began with the creation of the universe and mankind, but when sin was introduced into the world by the rebellion of Adam and Eve, God provided redemption and reconciliation through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Those who accept this provision of salvation will gain eternal life with God, but to those who reject this gift of grace, they'll be separated from God's goodness and his love for all eternity. But Rohr completely rejects this view of the gospel. According to Rohr, the idea of a God who doles out punishment is unhealthy, cheap, and toxic. 
But the universal Christ is not the biblical Christ, and Christians would be wise to become acquainted with this language that's gaining popularity in the New Age and in progressive Christianity. If you want to do a deeper dive on all things universal Christ, I recorded a podcast with my friend Stephen Bankars, who used to teach these ideas when he was a leader in the New Age movement. Now, as a Christian, he refutes the major points of Rohr's universal Christ, and you can find that podcast on YouTube. It's called Ex-New Age Guru Stephen Bankars debunks the universal Christ. Well, thanks so much for listening today. Again, if you really like these type of short-form answers and analysis and commentary, definitely go to YouTube. Check out Elisa Childers on YouTube. Check out Cross Examined, two words, on YouTube for more. And if you're listening on audio platforms, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for leaving us a good review on iTunes. It all helps. If you're listening on social media, click that like button, share it with your friends, leave a comment. It all helps with algorithms. And thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.